could, oh, that's <laughs> We're all fine. We're good. Did you have a nice day? Yes? How are you doing with your fasting? Hilltop, Hilltoppers are in a 40-day fast, which ends next Sunday. So finish strong. And if, and if you fell off by mistake during the 40 days, jump on today and finish the week out. Okay? The important thing to know about fasting, especially if you're doing a long fast, is that Jesus wasn't tempted during the fast. Jesus was tempted after the fast. And a lot of times we let our guards down. You know, we think, oh, we did it. Oh, my gosh, you know. And that's actually the, the wrong posture to take. When you finish that fast, you kind of want to be on red alert. You want to be paying attention to things that, you know, conversations, things on TV, computer, anything like that. Look at, look at what your weakest point is and assume something may come your way that day that way because especially when you finish a fast and you're feeling victorious <clears throat> victorious the enemy wants to come and just take you out at your knees because then you feel like a failure so just pay attention as this fast winds down okay so put the glasses on revelation is probably my favorite book in the bible I love it because there's potential for me to see it and to live through it. And so it has probably for the past 15 years absolutely captivated me. So in this way, I guess I'm the answer to my own prayers because even though I'm 57, I've never been in a church where the book of Revelation has been preached. And that has always bothered me. So today what we're going to do is we're going to kind of take a Google map look at Revelation. We're not going to get way down into all the details, but what I want to do is give you an outline so that when you read it yourself, you kind of have guideposts and you have some understanding of things that might be confusing to you if you look at it without any help whatsoever. So um, Daryl has been focusing on... Jesus and the Gospels during Lent. And so when it came my rotation and I saw that it was this week, um, I thought, what a wonderful time to do Revelation. Because I feel in many ways that when we give the Gospel to people, we're not giving them all that the Scriptures tell us about Jesus Christ. We're getting a window, but if you notice at the end of the book, the last book is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ, and we totally put that aside when it is so important because it is part of who our Savior is. I think one of the wonderful things about Jesus is that he has always been in the scriptures. We see Jesus in the Old Testament, although he is not named. Probably one of the standout moments when we see him is when Daniel's friends are in the burning, burning furnace. And who is there? Already showing us that in our darkest need, 
and in our darkest hour, he will be there for us. He is already foreshadowing who he is to us, even in the Old Testament. And then we have Jesus in the Gospels. When we see the Gospels, I think we have to understand that when he came the first time, he came for a specific purpose. And that purpose, if we look through Scripture, um, we see it's Luke 19.10, to seek and to save what was lost. John 3.17 says, he did, he did not come to the world to condemn it, but to save it. He came to give human beings the opportunity to be separated from their sins before all sin must be destroyed. And so that was Jesus' first coming. That was his mission. Mission accomplished. But when Jesus comes the second time, that is not his mission. And that's why he looks so different. When he comes the second time, it's almost the reverse. His second coming is the opposite for the opposite reason. To destroy rather than save, to punish sin rather than pardon it, and to judge the living and the dead. That's why he looks so different from the Jesus in the Gospels, but it is the same man. It's just as much as who he is as who he is in the Gospels. So we have the last book, the book of Revelation, and it's written for believers. That's really important when you're looking at scripture, when you're looking at all the different books, to understand who is this book written for. And the book of Revelation is clearly for believers. The fact that God has attached a blessing and a curse to this book speaks of the high level of value God puts on what's inside. It is the only book that you get blessed if you read it. It doesn't mean you have to understand it. Just reading it, there is a blessing to you that comes from no other book. But there's the same thing there's a curse attached to it as well, which is extremely severe. And that is, if you add or remove something from this book, you could lose your eternal soul. That is how powerful this book is. And so I think it's really important that we take a look at it. The book of Revelation is about the unveiling and the return of our Lord and Savior first and foremost. It is God telling us who his beloved son is in the full glory and the full weight of who he is. Secondarily, it's a book about the changing from one age to another. But I think if we look at the book of Revelation in terms of what happens to us, will I have enough food? Will I be hurt? Will I be harmed? Will I be martyred? We are really looking at it in the wrong spirit. It's rather narcissistic to look at a book, this book, that way because it is about Jesus Christ and who he fully is and how much he absolutely adores us and how much he loves his Father. Because the thing about the book of Revelation is, is that it ends, the ending of the book of Revelation is really the beginning of Genesis because all Jesus wants to do is to provide a place where his father can once again walk in the cool of the day with his children. That's what this is all about. And so that's what Jesus' second mission, his second coming is all about.
is taking away everything that hinders his father from loving his children. So in that vein, we see in the first chapter that this is about God's son and his glory. And the thing that stands out on my mind when I look at the Gospels and how we see Jesus and the book of Revelation and how we see Jesus, right off the bat, we see John. Now, John was at the Mount of Transfiguration. And John looked and he saw Jesus and he noticed there was a change in him. But we see here at the opening of Revelation that John falls down as if dead when he sees Jesus in, in the fullness of who he is. And so I think when we look at Jesus and we talk about Jesus to people, we need to include this Jesus. We need to include this man, these facets of his personality, because it's the same. He's the same man, and it needs to be treated equally. Um, when we look at the book of Revelation, sometimes it can be a little bit confusing. I know when I first started reading it, um, I didn't really have any background in scripture. You know, I was just opening it up and trying to read it on my own. And it was obviously extremely confusing. The more I started seeing the importance of reading scripture in chronological order as a story, the pieces started to fall into place. Because what you'll find is the book of Revelation is kind of the zenith, the climax of the story. But like any story that you read, if you're skipping chapters or completely disregarding parts of the story, you don't know the whole story. And especially with Revelation, most of the information that you need is found in the Old Testament. It's also found in the New Testament, but a huge portion of the book of Revelation is made far more understandable if you know what the Old Testament is and what's, what the story is, how God laid it out. Um, to that end, now at the book table, we do have the Bible in chronological order. We just got it in, so that would be, that'll be pretty helpful to you. I'm sure. Oh, thank you. <laughs> um, I've heard it said that the, the word of God is your shelter when the storm comes. And I believe that's true for us, especially with the book of Revelation. You know, when the book of Revelation, when, the whole, when it really kicks in and it, and it starts, all the things that God has said and told us, um, chances of you having a Bible are slim to none. You know, the fact that you would be able to go to your home and get a Bible, I think, is, is almost ludicrous at that point. So you really need to know what your scripture is now because it won't be available to you. So when things are quiet, it's good to seek and learn what you can. In all of scripture, there are probably 125 verses, chapters, that are geared towards what takes place in the book of Revelation. Through the whole book, there's probably about 100 signs of the times that people look at, watchers. You know, God says, watch and pray. And that's really important because if you are a watcher, if you're doing what God has asked you to do, you're kind of watching the scope and everything that's going on around the world, paying particular attention to the things that he tells you to pay attention to. Um, 
Many theologians want to spiritualize the book of Revelation. Oh, it, it was long ago. Antiochus was the Antichrist because he did decimate the temple. And, but I think the thing that changed everything was May 14, 1948, when, Jesus, when Israel became a nation in one day, fulfilling the scripture in um, Isaiah 66. And then again in, I think it was in June of 1968, when Israel took possession of Jerusalem. That was another huge sign of the times. And so at that point, many people had to kind of stop and say, maybe this book isn't to be spiritualized. Maybe things are exactly as he said, and they are starting to unfold. Um, a lot of people think, um, obviously, what happens in Revelation is global. But on the other hand, it's very central to the Middle East. And when reading Revelation, you don't really hear much about what happens to the Jews in the book of Revelation. And that is because what happens to the Jews during the book of Revelation is told to them by their prophets in the Old Testament. So Zechariah, Daniel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, that's where their information comes from. And so when you read those things, you understand what happens to the Jewish people. Zechariah says when the Jewish people realize what they have done, and how they have not received their Messiah, when he now comes to save them, that there's a wailing that goes out through the entire nation, like every family has lost their firstborn son. And Israel, in fact, will be the first nation that is saved 100% in all of history. For the Gentiles, most of the information that we need about Revelation for us is in Revelation. It's also in Matthew 24, Luke 21, and Thessalonians. So when you put those pieces together, you get the story of what happens with the Gentiles. Most people are terrified of this book, but only 3% of the book is scary, is harsh. Um, the book is God's plan to bring an end to sin, for Jesus to come. And he comes the second time because he's staying. He doesn't leave again. He comes and he stays, and he gets the earth ready for his father. That's the point. And yes, some of the judgments are harsh, but the judgments are there because it's the last opportunity for people who have rejected him to accept him. So some people look at God's coming in and you know waylaying but it's not, it's their last opportunity. It's like if a house is burning and your child's in it. You don't care if you break every bone in their body getting that child out of the house. The point is to save the child. And so it is with this. They are, yes, they are severe, but it is their last chance. I think another beautiful thing about the book of Revelation when we see is we will see the bride in all of her glory. We will see people that are so pure and so sold out for him that they will radiate and they will be so pure that the Holy Spirit will pour out his spirit in an unprecedented, unprecedented way. It's the signs and the wonders. It's the greater works. 
the Holy Spirit will be communicating. Heaven and earth will almost be attached because of the power of the Holy Spirit releasing information to the church. The church will be acting as one. And the church isn't going to be afraid. These people are going to be so on fire. It'll be like the book of Acts. You didn't see Stephen running away. You saw Stephen running right into the midst of it because he is so sure of who his God is. To die will be nothing. And that is going to be an amazing thing to see. The judgments are like the plagues. So if you were to go and to read about Moses and the plagues, you will notice some very interesting um, correlations. Many of the judgments are like the plagues in Egypt. Um, the birth pangs that are spoken about so much, the things that the watchers are looking at, um, are global. So sometimes we look at things that are taking place locally, and we think, oh my gosh, <laughs> here it comes. But all of the things that we're to be watching for must be on a global level. The, in the New Testament, the word for nations is ethnos. So what we're seeing in our country right now is a small sampling of what will take place worldwide when we look at the ethnic groups waging war against one another. What we're seeing is a little glimpse of that. That tells us something, yes, but this needs to take place on a global level. It's important to know. The book of Revelation is the end of an era. And so the number in scripture for ending, the ending or the completion of something is seven. In the book of Revelation, there are 49 sets of seven. That's seven times seven. So we have some handouts for you to make things a little bit easier. So if you, they could be handed out, that would be great. Yeah, thank you. So I'm going to speak a little bit about the very beginning of the book <clears throat> as we start. After the usual grace message, you know, the grace and peace greeting that takes place in most of the books, we have the key to the book given straight out by God, the theme of the letter. The theme of the letter is he is coming. The sender of the letter is God himself. The scribe is John. And the majesty of Jesus Christ is fully revealed. In chapters 1 through 3, we have 30 descriptions of Jesus and 22 specific rewards for overcomers. Then we move right on to the letters to the seven churches. And you have a handout. I think it's probably on the top of the seven churches. You have the um, kind of all the letters put on a chart for you. I think the most important thing on that chart is the last the last um, message to each one of the churches. So each church is varying. The churches are no longer in existence except for Sardis. Sardis is still in existence. But the spirit of each of those churches is alive and well in many of the churches that we see today. 
And so what God is saying is, these are the things that I appreciate in a church. These are the things I love in a church. And he's also saying, these are the things you must, must get rid of. Because the most important thing is that at the end, we must hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. In the book of Revelation, in that time, if you are not in a place where you're walking in purity, you will not hear what the Spirit is saying. And that will not do well, bode well for you. Um, so what God wants in a church and what God doesn't want in a church is still very much applicable to today. The next we have the throne room, Revelation 4 through 5. In that segment, the key word is throne. It's mentioned 16 times. The only action in chapter 4 is unceasing worship. And we see this the same what happened to Daniel. Before Daniel saw and caught the visions and the dreams of what was going to happen, who the Antichrist was, how he would rise to power, before we saw that, before Daniel saw that, he saw the throne room. And this is the same thing as happens with John. Because God wants to make sure that they understand he is the one that is all-powerful. He is the one that is sovereign. When we see the Antichrist is given power, he is given power by God. Nothing happens in this whole story that is not filtered through the hands of a loving God. None of it. So the throne is really important, the power of God and the sovereignty of God before we go forward. So next we have the chronological sections. And this is usually where people get caught up. They get a little confused because it can be a little bit difficult. So we're going to break it down a little bit. There are two literary features in the book structure. We have five chronological sections, five things that take place in, in order. Then we have five parenthetical sections, which are like the story being put on hold so John can get an explanation as to what is going on. So the five chronological sections are written in a pretty straightforward way. The five angelic explanations um, in the parenthetical sections do not always match up to what is going on chronologically. So you just need to be paying attention. John really wants to know why are the judgments so severe, what is happening, and how will God help his children. The angelic explanations are the most challenging parts of Revelation because they contain the symbolism. And on the other side of your church page, you have the breakdown of what the symbols mean. Um, like the, the ten kings, it's very clear if you know Daniel who the ten kings are, but um, it's there to help you. On the, the last one, the woman with the child, some people think that's Israel, some people think that that's the, just the church at large, but it's there to compare Babylon with the church. So those two things are there just to reflect one another, the difference, the great difference between one another. So here we have the first, the seven sealed judgments. The judgments do speed up as time goes on. The seals are open, and the, seven, the first seven seals are open. They take a longer time. The bowls, on the other hand, only take about 30 days. Jesus is on the earth, and the bowls are released. And that's only about a 30-day 30, 30 period or 45. And all those things come from Daniel. So the first seal is a white horse. 
some people think this is, you know, could it be Christ because Christ comes on a white horse, but it's not true. The anti, it's the Antichrist, and he is counterfeiting Jesus. He's coming on a white horse. Jesus is coming on a white horse. Antichrist has a crown. Jesus has many crowns. And you see that he has a bow, but he does not have an arrow, which means that this is conquest, but it is not yet a violent conquest. If you know Daniel, you'll know he's going to take power in a very quiet way. He's going to rise up, and he's going to be so magnificent to look at. He is going to be so smart. He is going to be so beautiful, so enticing, that if you do not know who he is, like if you don't know if you're not a watcher, if you're a watcher, you know way before he takes power who he is. But if you don't know, he will be the most wonderful person because he's going to bring peace. So at first he comes as a man without violence, but that's not true because his undercurrent is very violent. So that's the first part. The second seal is violent aggression. It's a world war. So you see the first, the seven seal judgments are primarily man-based. They come in a pattern, four, two, and one, as do the other judgments. The first four are connected, the second two are a little bit different, and the third one, the seventh, is other. So the second, the second is a world war. The third makes sense. It's fam famine and economic crisis. The fourth seal is disease and death, affecting one-fourth of the earth. Then we switch a little bit. The fifth, seal, the fifth, the church is strengthened by the martyrs. So while the church is protected and the Jews, believing Jews, are protected by God from his judgments, they're sealed, we're sealed. But what we are not sealed against is the Antichrist and what he does. So we're protected by God's judgments, against God's judgments, but the Antichrist will hate the Jews and hate the Christians alike. So the martyrs are praying, and the church is strengthened by the prayers of the martyrs. The sixth seal are tremors and cobs, a cosmic crisis or disturbance of some kind. The seventh seal, there's actually silence in heaven, and this church is strengthened to release the trumpet judgments. You understand? A little bit? Yeah? <laughs> okay. The first angelic explanation. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? This angelic explanation answers the question, who can stand in the midst of so much pressure? Plus pressure. John sees a divine sealing on the people that give them spiritual and physical protection. There will be 144,000 Jewish believers and that's broken down equally into the 12 tribes of Israel, Jewish believers who will stand in victory. The saints do not receive God's judgments. The thing that's interesting is in Jeremiah 16, 14, Jeremiah tells the, the Jews that there is going to come a day you're not going to talk about Moses' deliverance of you out of Egypt. There's coming a day when you won't talk about that anymore. And many commentaries say, oh, that's because of Babylon. They escaped from Babylon, but I don't believe that's true. I think because what Jesus is going to do for the Jewish people is going to just blow away all that happened in Egypt with the Jews. 
Gentile believers from every different background and from every nation are seen standing without wavering under persecution. This is the beautiful bride. Many saints will also be physically protected in the end times. Do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. I heard the number of those sealed, the Jews, 144,000 of all the tribes of Israel were sealed. Behold, a great multitude of all nations before the throne, clothed with right, white robes, saying, Salvation belongs to our God. God puts a protective seal on his people from all the other tribes of Israel before he strikes the earth. Other believers will be sealed by God. At the time of the exodus from Egypt, Israel received a protective mark on their doors that saved them their firstborn from death. Israel was also protected from other plagues that affected the Egyptians. So it's the same thing. We're seeing God not changing. He is still protecting his people. So the chronological section number two is the trumpic judgments, and these are primarily nature-based. They're supernatural acts of God to destroy the Antichrist resources. The first five trumpets parallel five of the plagues of Egypt. The first trumpet parallels the seventh plague of fire mingled with blood. The second and third trumpets parallel the first plague of the Nile turning to blood. The fourth trumpet parallels the ninth plague of darkness. The fifth trumpet parallels the eighth plague of locust torment. So here we have the burning of one-third of the Earth's vegetation in the first trumpet. Second trumpet is one-third of the sea is destroyed. Third trumpet is the poisoning of one-third of the Earth's fresh water. The fourth trumpet is the darkening of one-third of the Earth's light. Fifth trumpet is the releasing of some kind of demonic locusts that torment for five months. The sixth trumpet is an oriental invasion that kills one-third of the earth. It's very severe. The angelic explanation for this is an angel explains after the crisis of the six judgments, trumpet judgments, this section is focused on the welfare of the saints. God promises to provide prophetic direction by releasing an unprecedented outpouring of the Holy Spirit, Acts 2, 17 through 20, and also Joel. God has concealed key prophetic information that will re be revealed in the end times. He will also he will reveal it to the church, and he will raise up the two witnesses who will help God's people with great power during the last three and a half years of tribulation. Jesus will also raise up prophetic messengers who will carry the seven thunders prophetic messages. The two witnesses are my favorites outside of Jesus, if you read their story. It is quite remarkable. So at the halfway point, three and a half years, the first three and a half years are quiet. Three and a half years, Jesus says, you must know Daniel, you must know the abomination of desecration if you're gonna understand this. And Jesus is talking to his believers. He's talking to the church, meaning the church will be here. So at three and a half years, the Antichrist will go into the temple, the Jewish temple, which will be on where the, the Dome of the Rock is now. So the Antichrist will somehow broker a deal that will get the Jewish people their temple with sacrifices on that temple mount. 
nine and a half months before this time, he will do something that the watchers will understand that this is the guy. He will do one thing that catches the watchers' attention and they will realize who he is. Nine months later, he will go into that temple and say, I am God, you will worship me only. And that's when all of this begins. So in scripture, you see three time periods that are actually the same. 1260 days, 42 months, times, times, time, time and a half, time, time, time. Three times, one and a half, three and a half years. And so the two witnesses are put in Jerusalem at the very beginning. And if you look at their story, they will be able to call down fire from heaven. Anything they ask for, God will give them. And so they are a thorn in the side of the Antichrist because he cannot kill them. And they are just proclaiming God's word. And so it's going to be quite an amazing thing. To tell you a secret, I wanted to be one of the witnesses. <laughs> I prayed, can I please be one of the witnesses? But I think it's um, Elijah and Enoch, so I'm not quite in the ballpark. <laughs> but I thought, if I'm alive, I'll bring them falafels or something, you know? <laughs> I just want to see them because they'll be just this, you know, this amazing picture of heaven and God. <laughs> so anyway, and that brings us to the seventh trumpet. And that brings us to one of the, there are two controversial parts of Revelation, one is the rapture, and the other is the millennial kingdom and the timing of that. So here in scripture, the seventh trumpet. The seventh trumpet is the second coming procession, procession which begins with the rapture at the last trumpet. The last trumpet signals the time when Jesus raptures the church. The seventh angel sounded and the voices saying, the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God the most beautiful words in all of scripture. So the thing about the rapture is that a lot of people have been taught that the rapture happens before all of this takes place. And that comes from a man named Thomas Darby. And I'm not going to get into his what happened and how he got to that place. But Thomas Darby had influence, and so his theory was put in the footnotes of the Schofield Bible. The Schofield Bible was then used by the Dallas Theological Seminary. And that still goes forth, that doctrine still goes forth from them today. But if you look at it and you look at what, what happens and what Jesus talks about, Jesus says he's coming twice. All of scripture says Jesus Christ is coming twice. So he comes first as a child in a manger. And then it's quite clear in scripture, he comes a second time at the seventh trumpet. So if he were to come in a secret time and rapture out his church, that would be three times. And that is just contrary to scripture. The interesting thing to note about this theory is that the Western churches are the only one that believe it. It's only been in existence, I think it's 175 years. So it's relatively new. And it's not what people have thought for 2,000 years. So you really need to look closely. For me, it was a very hard, I couldn't believe it. You know, when I finally read, I was challenged. And when I finally read and I saw it for myself, it was actually a good thing because it made me 
changed the way I view how I was taught. Now I have to validate everything myself. Someone can teach me something, and that's great. I might like the way it feels. I might like the way it sounds. But now I know I need to go and find out for myself what the truth is for me and what the Holy Spirit is saying to me. So in one way, it was devastating. But in another way, it brought light to the way I look at scripture and the way I walk my Christian walk. Um, if you look at Thessalonians, a lot of people, um, when we talk about the way Jesus is going to come, a lot of people will say, he's coming like a thief in the night. Have you heard that? He's coming like a thief in the night, and we will have no idea when he comes. And that's just not true. You just need to read further down. And that's in um, Thessalonians 5. It says, but concerning the times and the season, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. That's they. That's unbelievers. That's people who do not know the truth of God, what God has said. Now, if you read on, it says, But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so this day should not overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and the sons of day. We are not of the night nor of darkness. Therefore, let us not sleep as others do, but let us watch and be sober. So Jesus' intent is not to surprise his children. Jesus' intent is to make sure that we are postured and not getting 50,000 cans of whatever, but it's a spiritual posturing of ourselves. It's like the virgins having oil in your lamp, understanding the scriptures so that you can teach, because if all the Christians are taken away, who teaches all of these people? The bride does. So... The seventh, the seventh trumpet is the coming of Christ, the rapturing of the church. He is now on the earth. So the angelic explanation number three says, this angelic explanation occurs after the seventh trumpet and the rapture. It gives us insight into the magnitude of Satan's attack against the church and explains why God's wrath is so severe. Namely, Satan makes war through his two vessels, the Antichrist and the false prophet. The Antichrist violently confronts God's purpose and his people. This angelic explanation occurs after the announcement about Jesus replacing all the governments on the earth and gives insight as to why God's wrath is so severe as to require that all the governments of the earth be replaced. The reason is that the Antichrist and those in agreement with his leadership violently confront all that is dear to God in the earth. So the earth is just permeated with evil and sin at this point. In Revelation 13, 1 through 10, the Antichrist will wage war against God and his people with a political, military, and economic alliance of a ten-nation confederation. The false prophet will be devoted to causing all nations to worship Satan and the Antichrist. The ten-nation confederation is spoken a lot about in Daniel. And it's very important. It's where all this starts. 
is the Ten Nation Confederation. And I guess back in like in the 70s when they were starting the European Union and they added the tenth, <laughs> everybody freaked because they thought, oh no, here's here's the Ten Nation Confederation. But, <laughs> but then they added the eleventh and the twelfth, so <laughs> everybody was good. <laughs> <laughs> you have to be careful when you're watching things. You know, you really have to pay attention and validate what's going on and what's happening. Because people can just, you know, as we all know, off we go. <laughs> so, now Jesus is on the earth. And this is the last of the judgments. It's the seven bulls. The seven bulls happen incredibly quickly. They are the third and final numbered series of judgments. They will destroy the actual the interf- the infrastructure of society. Jesus will release these bulls in a way that parallels once again the ten plagues of Egypt. All the bulls will be poured out over a 30-day period as Jesus marches up through Jordan, which is interesting. Jesus' first stop, although he comes to the Mount of Olives where he left, he goes to Jordan. And if you're on the Mount of Olives, if you've ever been to Israel, you can actually see Jordan from there. So for some reason, Jesus goes to Jordan Many people think that because many of the Jews will be in concentration camps there, that they will be in capt- you know, captivated, in captured, sorry. And Jesus will go there because Jordan, we know from Scripture, is going to be in alliance with the Antichrist. There are four nations that really connect with him and that are on his same side, Jordan being one of them. So for whatever reason, Jesus goes to Jordan first. Most people think it's to free the Jews. And then he comes up from Jordan and goes into Jerusalem. At that point, his robes are completely stained with blood. Completely stained with blood. So the Armageddon campaign is actually, most people think, in Jerusalem. They will meet all the nations of the world, will meet at the Valley of Armageddon, which is huge, 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 huge place. And they will come down into Jerusalem, and Jesus will meet them there. Don't forget that Jesus, when he left, I believe it's in Matthew 23, but I'm not sure. He says, I will not come back to this place. I will not enter Jerusalem again until the leadership says, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until they say, you are the Messiah, you are sent by God, I will not enter these gates again. And so what we see now is they realize who their Messiah is and they welcome him in because the entire world is against them. The Jews will be standing alone at that point. We don't know what happens to the people of the West. It's not spoken of in scripture. So North America, South America, Australia, New Zealand, we don't know what what our role is to play in that place. We don't know if it's a praying role. We don't know if we have suffered so much damage that we are not be able to be an active player, but it's not spoken what happens to us. So the first bowl is sores, and these are really angelically released, where the other ones were man and nature. These are really released by angelic powers powerful sores on those who worship the Antichrist because this is their last chance. The second bowl is destroying the sea with blood and killing everything in it. The third bowl is the poisoning of the earth's fresh water with blood. The fourth bowl is scorching heat and fire from the sun. 
The fifth is the darkness on the Antichrist global empire. The sixth bowl is the deceiving of nations to come to Armageddon. The seventh is a great earthquake and hailstones. The thing to remember here, it's dark. So some people say, how, how do people even know when Jesus comes? Like, how do you know when he's there? It's totally dark. It'll be totally dark on the earth. And scripture says it will be like a huge bright white light. And that's how we will know. So all of these things take place when Jesus is on the earth. So what he's doing is finally stopping everything and all the structures and infrastructures that will prop up the Antichrist and his empire. The seventh bowl declares God's fierce judgment on Babylon. The angelic explanation tells why the, the judgments are so severe and necessary. The seduction of the harlot Babylon's evil religion will permeate and infiltrate all the structures of society requiring that she be destroyed. Now, Babylon, it's going to be like a world center, a world economic center. It's called Babylon. Many people believe Babylon will be rebuilt. But the thing about it is it will be an economic center. It'll be a political center. Everybody will have some kind of interchange with Babylon. It will be that powerful. And in... Uh, Revelation, the interesting thing is that Babylon is in existence all through this time, but it speaks of it in the end of the book, the end of Revelation. And John, the angel, is showing John what this city looks like. And John, who has had a, now a throne room experience, he has seen his best friend full of power and glory. He has seen all of this judgment. And when the angel shows John Babylon, this is his response. I saw the woman drunk with blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So if John is amazed, you can think what other people are going to think, how enticing that city is going to be. And the angel said to me, why did you marvel? So it's important to see the gravity of what's going on, the pull, the magnetic pull that will be taking place throughout this entire story. God will actually have the ten kings destroy Babylon. That is who is going to do it. So the, the entire alliance will start crumbling, and the ten kings themselves will set fire or will have Babylon burned. And that's why when the Twin Towers fell and there was all that burning and all that fire, people said, is this that? Is this Babylon falling? Because the, the way it's set up is, it says in scripture that boats will be out at sea and they will see Babylon burning and they will mourn. People will be so upset that Babylon has fallen. It's like the two witnesses. The two witnesses will finally be killed at the end. And people will be so happy that those two witnesses have been killed that they'll actually give gifts. They will exchange gifts. They'll be so happy because the torment will end, or so they think. 
But what happens is they leave their bodies on the streets. They don't even bury them. And on the third day, they rise. And thousands of people are saved. And then God raises them up to heaven. Many are saved, and after that is a huge earthquake that destroys a large part of the city. So the last section of Revelation is actually easy to understand, so I didn't go into a lot of detail on it. It's the last, actually the last set of sevens. It's the Perugia, which is actually Jesus returning. White horse, the white horse, the same as the counterfeit Antichrist. He will come on a white horse with bloodstained robes. The angelic, the second one is the angelic invitation to the birds to gorge on the corpses. There'll be so many dead in Israel, they will not be able to bury them all. And so the angels have the birds come. Armageddon, the kings and the armies destroyed by the word of God. The two beasts, the Antichrist and the false prophet, will be thrown into the lake of fire. The thing about Armageddon is every leader of the world will be for the first time in one location. And Jesus speaks a word to each one of them, and that's what kills them, because his mouth brings life and his mouth can destroy. So after this is done, Jesus will be the leader of the world. That's the vacuum he will fill. Then we see Satan. Satan is bound in the abyss for a thousand years. And here's where the controversy comes a little bit. So Satan is not thrown into the lake of fire. Satan is put away into the abyss for a thousand years, hence the millennial, the millennial kingdom. In that time, Jesus will be preparing the earth for his father. Take a thousand years. During that time, there are going to be people who once again rebel against him and his leadership. So after the thousand years, Jesus will release Satan one more time. And he will gather the followers whose hearts have been rebelling against Christ, and they will be thrown into the lake of fire together. After that, we have the, the second resurrection. So it's judgment. So Jesus is our judge. There's two resurrections. There is the first and the second. The first is the resurrection of believers. And they are the ones who are with Jesus for the thousand years on the earth. There is a second resurrection for all men. And that's when the books are opened. And if your name is found in the book of life, you stay. If your name is not, then you go into the lake of fire as well. But at that point, all evil is gone from the earth. And Jesus then can welcome his father back to earth. So it's the recreation, the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. Some people think that the whole earth is redone. Some people think it's different. It'll be just different. That's one of those things that's kind of up in the air. We don't know. We don't know everything. This book just gives us the information that we need to prepare ourselves. But once again, I think the most beautiful thing about this book is Jesus coming back, yes, but it's also seeing the bride in all of her glory. You know, it's what the church, what we pray for in the prayer room all the time, a people that will be totally sold out to him. People that will walk 
in the most amazing signs and wonders that hear from heaven so well that they hear from him and off they go. Amazing planning, amazing revelation, revelation like we've never had before on this earth to this group of people. And so there's actually a, um, a video that we saw that reminded me of this group of people. It's actually, this is more geared towards young people, but I think it's young and old, and it postures, shows the posture of their heart for this time. So I hope this helped you a little bit, gave you a little bit of information, helped you read through the book. But as I said, a lot of it is in Zechariah, in Daniel, and in other places. So let's get on with the video. So this guy comes up to me and says, what's the vision? What's the big idea? I open my mouth and words come out like this. The vision. The vision is Jesus. Obsessively, dangerously, undeniably, Jesus. The vision is an army of young people. You see bones, I see an army. And they are free from materialism. They laugh at nine to five little prisons. They could eat caviar on Monday and cross on Tuesday. They wouldn't even notice. They are mobile like the wind. They belong to the nations. They need no passport. People write their addresses in pencil and wonder at their strange existence. They are free, yet they are slaves of the hurting and dirty and dying. What's the vision? The vision is holiness that hurts the eyes. It makes children laugh and adults angry. It gave up the game of minimum integrity long ago to reach for the stars. It scorns the good and strains for the best. It is dangerously pure. Light flickers from every secret motive, every private conversation. It loves people away from their suicide leaps, their Satan games. This is an army that will lay down its life for the cause. A million times a day, its soldiers choose to lose that they might one day win the great well done of faithful sons and daughters. Such heroes are as radical on Monday morning as Sunday night. They do not need fame from names. Instead, they grin quietly upwards and hear the crowd chant again and again come on and this is the sound of the underground the whisper of history in the making 
Foundation shaking, revolutionaries dreaming once again. Mystery is scheming in whispers, conspiracy is breathing. This is the sound of the underground and the army is disciplined. Young people who beat their bodies into submission. Every soldier would take a bullet for his comrade at arms. The tattoo on their back boasts for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Sacrifice fuels the fire of victory in their upward eyes. Winners. Martyrs, who can stop them? Can hormones hold them back? Can failure succeed? Can fear scare them or death kill them? And the generation prays like a dying man with groans beyond talking, with warrior cries, sulfuric tears, and with great barrel loads of laughter, waiting, watching 24, 7, 3, 6, 5. Whatever it takes, they will give, breaking the rules, shaking mediocrity from its cozy little hide, laying down their rights and their precious little wrongs, laughing at labels, fasting essentials. The advertisers cannot mold them, Hollywood cannot hold them. Peer pressure is powerless to shake their resolve at late night parties before cockerel cries. They are incredibly cool, dangerously attractive inside, and on the outside, they hardly care. They wear clothes like costumes to communicate and celebrate but never to hide would they surrender their image or their popularity they would lay down their very lives swap seats with the man on death row guilty as hell a throne from an electric chair with blood and sweat and many tears with sleepless nights and fruitless days they pray as if it all depends on god and live as if it all depends on them their dna chooses jesus he breathes out and they breathe in their subconscious sings they had a blood transfusion with jesus their words make demons scream in shopping centers don't you hear them coming herald the widows summon the losers and the freaks here comes the frightened and the forgotten with fire in their eyes they walk tall and trees applaud skyscrapers bow mountains are dwarfed by these children of another dimension their prayers summon the hounds of heaven and invoke the ancient dream of eden and this vision will be it will come to pass it will come easily and it will come soon how do i know because this is the longing of creation itself the groaning of the spirit the very dream of god my tomorrow is his today my distant hope is his 3d and my feeble whispered faithless prayer invokes a thunderous resounding bone shaking great amen from countless angels from heroes of the faith from christ himself and he is the original dreamer the ultimate winner guaranteed doing that's uh, called the vision poem um, if you're uh, if you're not familiar with it it comes out of a prayer room in the uh, United Kingdom um, it's pretty powerful I'm, I'm just gonna um, we're gonna take communion in a minute but 